Well, hey, good morning. My name is Joel. I'm the family pastor here. I'm glad you're with us today as we conclude a series that we've been in all month long called Getting Past Your Past. And uh, I, I've been chosen to bring up the end of this series uh, and talk about that. And I'm looking forward to it today. Um, it's my joy to serve here. Uh, I am a father of three and I'm the husband of one and been married for about, about 14 years. And if you really want to get to know, to know me and want to know more about me, the best thing to ask is what's my favorite spectator sport? And you may guess like it's football or hockey or basketball or baseball, but all of those are wrong. My favorite spectator sport is watching couples fight. I love it. Like when they're fighting in, in, in a restaurant, you know, and you can see the husband and wife start to fight. I, I order popcorn, even if it's not on the menu. I'm like, get me some popcorn and some milk does and a humongous Coke because I'm going to watch this. I want to see them fight. I love that awkward moment. I like, to, I like to spur them on. I like to be around friends and I know it'll get them fighting and I'll bring that up. Like, hey, you remember that one time that? And I do that. If you're a creeper like me and you get off on that, all you got to do is come up to my wife and I in the hall this afternoon and, and you can say, I'll give you three phrases that, I mean, you just spit them out to us and it's probably going to set us off. You can say to my wife, Becky and I, you can come up and go, tell me about the great bunk bed incident of Panama City, 1997, and then just step back and watch it happen. Or you could come up to us and you go, I want to know about the haircut project. Carson Newman College, 1998, and just step back and watch it happen. Or if you really want to get us going, you can come up and go, tell me about Ben Wildman, Signal Mountain, Tennessee, 1988. Just watch the sparks fly. Because my wife in 1988 was being dropped off the bus stop or way home from middle school. And this was back in the day where the bus actually dropped you at the end of the street. They didn't stop at every single dang house and let every kid out, all right? And she was dropped off with another middle schooler named Ben Wildman. And the story, the legend, the lore goes that Ben picked up a rock and threw it over the Signal Mountain, Tennessee water tower which is five stories tall. This young 13-year-old flung a rock, much like George Washington throwing it over the Natural Bridge in Virginia, and he cleared the Signal Mountain water tower. Becky brought this up to me early on in our dating and our courtship, all right? Down the street from the, the water tower was her house. I was picking her up from a date. Still had stars in my eyes. You know, my heart beat fast when I was around her. Still trying to score a kiss when I dropped her off from the date. And we're driving down the street and she goes, one day just a conversation, early date, she goes, I saw a kid in middle school throw a rock over that water tower. And I remember going, Really? Which water tower? She said that water tower. This huge five-story water tower. So about a year goes by. We're dating. I'm picking her up. And, and still stars in my eyes. So it makes my heart beat a little fast. But, you know, maybe I'm going to get kissed. And maybe not. I don't know. We've been dating for a while. And I said, tell me that story. One night driving. Tell me that story about him throwing a rock over the water tower. She's like, yeah, in middle school, this boy threw a rock over the water tower. I was like, are you sure? She goes, I'm sure. That's why I remember it. Because it was so amazing that he threw a rock over that. 
fast forward a little bit. Early in marriage, we're up there on Signal Mountain. We drive by it and I go, so that boy, I didn't even ask her about it. I was like, so that boy was what? 23? She said, no, like 13. I said, and he threw a rock over the water tower. She said, she said, are you sure it like didn't go beside it and it looked like the angle? Because at this point in our relationship and we're married now, like she hadn't kissed me in like three years. So I'm like, this is going to be okay. I don't have to, I don't have to worry about tonight. I'd eaten garlic at dinner and I'd started to do charts and maps and graphs and physics and geometry in my spare time. Working out of Ben Wildman could actually heave a rock over that water tower. A few years later, we were called back to Chattanooga and we were working at a church And we're up on the mountain. And I said, so he threw a rock. I said, are you sure you didn't see a bird? You sure didn't go beside us? Like, because I've done the the, the math here. I've done the work. There's no way he could have cleared that. She's like, he did. I don't lie. And she's, she, my wife does not lie. So it's like, this is not a lie to me. She's like, I promise. That's what he said. That's it. I stopped the car. I get out of the car. I grab a rock because I'm a man, man. That's a kid. I get a little running start and I heave the rock as hard as I can. And it gets to about the middle of the water tower. And I was like, see, there's no way he could do it because I'm a man. To this day, she contends that Ben Wildman did it. And to this day, I contend that he did not. Because look at the physical specimen I am. There's stories, there's these amazing stories sometimes that go along with, with rocks and stones. And the Bible has several of them. There's, there's throughout scripture, there's these moments where, where rocks and stones are involved. I think it must be one of God's favorite things. Otherwise, he wouldn't have inspired the writers to include story after story. And some of them are tragic and sad. Some of them are funny. Some of them are uplifting. Some of them are challenging. But littered throughout the Bible... This book that our church uses to kind of guide our lives, it has story after story of rocks and stones that people consider. Today, we're going to stop and pause on one of them as we wrap up this series, Getting Past Your Past. If you want to look at it, it's in John chapter 8. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the fourth book of the New Testament. That's the second part of the Bible. If you have a, a smartphone and you want to go to YouVersion, you can do that. If you don't have a Bible or a smartphone um, or, or, or you're not very smart, we're going to put it on the screen, all right? So it's going to come right up here on the screen, John chapter 8. Um, and we're going we're gonna to kind of camp out in the story today and see about this person surrounded by rocks, this great story, this, this account of stones and how... They got past their past. Let me start for us in John chapter eight, verse one. You can read along with me. It says this, Jesus went to the Mount of Olives and early in the morning, he came again to the temple and all the people came to him and he sat down and he taught them. So that sets our context. Jesus is at the temple, a holy religious place. And he's early in the day. He sits down to teach and the people come and sit down around him to learn because that's what he is. He's a religious teacher. He's a rabbi. He is going to spend time talking about the scriptures with them, much like we're doing today. And it says in verse 3 that there were scribes and Pharisees. These are leaders in the Jewish culture of religion and law. And they come to him and they bring a woman, it says in verse 3, who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, teacher, 
This woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses, it commands us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? For those of you that partied really hard in the 80s, that's not a good kind of stone, all right? They have rocks in their hands and they're coming to stone this woman to death. They are going to fling rocks at her until she dies. And a couple of things I want us to note here. First is this. It says that she was caught in the act of adultery. That means she was guilty of adultery. She had committed this sin. She had broken this law. She had made this violation. She was caught red-handed. She most likely was pulled from the house, maybe even from the bed with her lover, and she is drugged to Jesus. And the religious leaders, even though I don't really agree with their tact here, They were correct when they said the law of Moses, that's the beginning of the Old Testament, the first five books of of the Old Testament, which is the first part of the Bible. And in there, in the book of Deuteronomy, which is one of those scrolls, it lays out the law and it says, here's what you do when people are caught in adultery. It actually says you're supposed to bring them if they're betrothed. So if she was engaged to somebody or maybe he was already married, they both come and they are to be killed by rocks. Throw rocks at them. So the law of Moses says they deserve to die. There's another, a commentary on the Old Testament that the Jews read and and looked to called the Mishnah. And the Mishnah actually said, yeah, this is true. The law, this, we agree with the law. These people die. It actually says in the Mishnah that the man is to be buried up to his waist in dung. Yes, I said dung. That means poop, poo-poo, doo-doo, caca, diarrhea. He is to be buried up to his waist in it, and he is to be strangled to death. Pretty grievous. The Mishnah says, yeah, she's going to be stoned. See, see that's, that's what we do with her. The law says if you're guilty, you die. And she was caught. I want you to note that. The other thing I want you to note is this. There's no man in the story here. She was caught in adultery. That means there had to have been somebody there and he beat a path. He got out of town. Probably because he knew he was going to be buried in dung and strangled to death. She was left alone with her guilt, with her sin, with her mistake, with her past. She was caught and he was gone and she was all alone. It's valuable for us to know that because sin and our mistakes and our past, it so often isolates us. It makes us feel alone. It singles us out. And though she was guilty, she was just as alone at that same time. And all of a sudden in the story, not only is she caught, not only is she guilty, she's surrounded by people with rocks in their hand ready to end her, ready to put her to death. And they were ready to do it. Because I just want to, a couple things I want you to know today. The first one is this. There is a human inclination to throw rocks. It's, it's, it's in us to throw, to fling rocks. And if you don't believe me, it means you are a girl or you don't have sons. Because if you have boys, you know that all they want to do is throw rocks. And if your sons string you out, wear you out, wear you down, pull you you, to to, to bits, make you tired, exhausted, what you do is you take them to the nearest body of water, be it a creek, a stream, a river, a lake, a pond, an ocean, and just put a bucket of rocks in front of them and you can finally sleep, all right? (laughs) 
That's all you do. And they'll just throw rocks as long as you let them. They'll throw them in the water. They'll throw them at the ducks. They'll throw them at each other. They'll throw them at old people. It don't matter because you're finally able to rest. But within all of us, there's an inclination to throw rocks, to cast stones. And the way we do it the most is not physically it's emotionally, it's mentally, it's in our eyes, it's with our expression. When we hear about the slip up, the mistake, the sin, and they're caught and they're guilty, we love to go, oh, bless her, as loud as we can, bless her, but she totally deserves it. We go, oh, I hate to hear that news about him. We say, it as, oh, I hate to hear that news about him. But I'm not surprised. In our minds, in our hearts, in our spirits, we cast those stones. We throw those rocks. We have an inclination in us to cast rocks, to throw rocks. We have an inclination in us to pounce, to cast judgment because we're a bloodthirsty people. And people love Love, love, love to say this about the church. We're like, you know who the worst at this is? It's the church. They're hypocrites and they're judges. They condemn. They're the worst. Maybe you've said that yourself. Maybe you're sitting here today and you're like, I can't believe I'm in a place with such hypocrites, judging, condemning. I can't bring my stuff there. I'm not good enough because of the church. Let me give you a little dose of reality. The church and church people aren't the worst at doing this. You know who is? You, me. I'm the best at condemnation and judgment. I'm the best at casting rocks at me because of my past, because of my mistakes, because of the things I've done. I'm the best at it. In fact, I don't need a crowd to drag me to Jesus. I'll get myself there and be like, Jesus, I am the worst. Throw rocks at me, bury me, strangle me, put me away because I have blown it. I am the most judgmental. I am the most condemning. I am the most cutting. I'm the most hurtful when it comes to me. I'm the best at throwing rocks at me. Because my sin has isolated me. It's made me be alone. My sin isolates me. My mistakes single me out. My past, it builds this gap. So when others see that and condemn me, it only confirms what I already knew. And for many of us in here today, it only confirms what you already knew about yourself because you've been throwing rocks at yourself, at your life, at your heart, at your mistakes for years and years and years. The truth is we don't need anyone to do this because we're pretty darn good at it ourselves. And when I think of John 8 and this crowd around this, this woman, when I close my eyes, it's not her that's sitting there, it's me. Because I've been caught. My sin, my past is caught up to me. And the crowd around me, they all look like me, which makes them one ugly crowd, but one really good crowd at casting judgment, throwing stones. We don't need enemies. We're doing a pretty good job of it on our own when it comes to us and to our past and what we've done. When we planned this series a few months ago, it was Chris, our, our lead pastor, and Patrick, our, our community pastor, and 
Josh, who was our former worship pastor and myself, we were in a room over in Linden and we were planning through this. Chris was like, hey, why don't you, Joel, why don't you come up and talk about your past? Because I'm not really the family pastor here. I'm the pastor of screwing up. It's really what I do the best. And I'm not going to hash out my old story because if you want to, just a few months ago, I shared it in a series we called White Picket Fences about the family. And I spent the, the third part of that series talking about my past. But in a nutshell, it's this. For the bulk of my adult life, I was hopelessly, utterly addicted to pornography, to lust. And it was my drug, it was my medication to help me cope with my insecurities, my fears, my doubts about myself. And while this was going on, I was living this lifestyle. Look at how great a pastor I am. I was a great youth pastor. I worked at wonderful churches. There were parents that were like, man, I want my kids to grow up and be like Joel. And I was like, no, you don't. Because inside I was throwing stones at myself. You don't understand how bad I am, mom. You don't understand how bad I am, dad. You don't want your kids to be anything like me. And I bought this lie where I said, if I can just kind of get my act together, I don't have to speak up, I don't have to speak out, I don't have to share with anybody, but I can get my act together, I'll fix it, and then I can go to Jesus, right? Isn't that how it works? And then I go to Jesus and go, won't you accept me now, Jesus, right? That's, that's what I had in my mind. But I lived in this pattern of isolating myself because of my doubts and my fears and my insecurities, and then coping with my addiction, and then condemning myself and and throwing rocks at me. Day after day after day, I would wake up and be like, I can't believe I'm doing this again. Why can't I stop? Day after day after day, I would tell myself, I'm going to lose my job. I'm going to lose my marriage. I had this prophecy about what was going to happen to me if I couldn't stop. Get a grip, Joel. You're going to lose it. You're going to lose it. You're going to lose it. And sure enough, I lost it. My past caught up with me. My sins caught up with me. And I was drugged into the court of my world and my church had no other reason but to fire me no option but to get rid of me because of how grievous my sins were only because my wife is a brave woman did she say let's fight together for our home and for our family and for our marriage and i stand here today not cured not fixed but i stand here today four years in recovery and almost three years sober of my drug of my addiction of how i acted out and I'm still very much an addict. I'm still very much prone to go into that pattern of isolation and, and condemnation and throwing rocks. But I'll tell you this, it happens a lot less. Because I know where my hope is found. Because somewhere in the mess of all of that, Jesus showed up. And when Jesus shows up, everything starts to change because he came in to that mess that I had created because of my fears and my doubts and my sinfulness. He came into that and still showed love to me. The one who should condemn me, he shows up. When Jesus gets involved, things change. It changed for me and it changed for this woman. I want you to see what it says here in verse 6. It says these scribes and Pharisees, these people that have drugged this woman to Jesus, they've caught her, they say she deserves to die, and then they look at him and they said to him, so what do you say? They're testing Jesus here, they're trying to isolate Jesus. They've isolated the woman, now they're trying to isolate Jesus, and they're saying, Jesus, the law says this, so what do we do? What should we do, Jesus? Because what they want to find out here is what Jesus is going to do. If Jesus says, yes, she has to die, then he's not this man of love and grace that everyone thought he was. 
But if Jesus says, you know what, we should show some grace and let her go, well, then he's breaking the law of Moses himself. They thought they had him trapped. And so they come to Jesus and they say, but what do you say? And in verse 6 it says, they said this to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. And Jesus, he bent down, and with his finger, he starts to write in the dirt. It doesn't say specifically what it is. There's some theories. And the one that I prescribe to is this. When Jesus bent down and writing, he's not just drawing and making art. He's not doing little symbols. There's a theory, and I agree with it, that Jesus started writing the sins of everyone that was in that crowd. And he was like, you, you've done this and this and this and you, you've done this and that guy has done this and that girl has done this and this woman that you've caught, she's not only done adultery, she's done this and this and he starts to write it. And John tells us that he's down in the dirt writing and they continue to ask him. It says, they continue to ask and he stands up, he comes out of the dirt and he stands up and he looks at him and he says this, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Without sin here doesn't mean without sin right in this moment. He's not saying, you who are without sin in this crowd, go ahead and cast the first stone. What he said, and they would have caught this in his intention, in the language that he used, without sin literally meant not just without sin at that moment, but with being someone who's never desired to do the same thing that she has done. He looks at them and he says, you who are without sin, who have never desired to do this, go ahead and cast the stone. Yeah, she deserves to die. She's been caught. She's guilty. The law says do it. So feel free to do it if you've never felt the same thing she's felt. And here's the amazing part where Jesus cracks me up. He goes right back down and starts riding in the dirt. You know why? He wasn't done with their sins. He wasn't done with the list about her and him and that guy and her and the woman caught in adultery. He just goes back because there's more to do. I, I think Jesus probably had to move at one point and be like, there's not enough dirt here. I got to go find some more dirt. Can somebody get me a stick? I, 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 my finger's getting tired of writing all of these people's sins. He gets down to do this, to write these things. And he says, go ahead and stone her. Throw your rocks. But only if you've never wanted to do the very same thing yourself that she has done. And he goes back to writing. Isn't that incredible? What he's showing here to her and to you and I. Who have sorted, colorful, screwed up pasts. Is this. You're not alone in your mistakes. You are not alone in your sin. You've bought the lie that I, nobody's as bad as me. Nobody's as, as, as unlovable. Nobody cares for me. Nobody can ever fix me. You've bought that lie for far too long. And Jesus is saying, hold on, you're not alone because there's sinners all around you. There are people who all deserve to die right around you. And he goes back to writing them. You think you're alone in your sin. You're not. There's more like you than you think. You think you're alone with a, a screwed up, jacked up past. You're not alone. There's more people like you than you think. Others have blown it. Others have screwed up. Others have thrown it away. And Jesus is saying here to her and to you and I, your past has separated you long enough. And an amazing thing happens. The people, John says, 
start to leave. Let me read verse nine for you. It says this. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. You know why the older ones got out of town? Because their list was a whole lot longer. They're like, I don't want to wait around and see what Jesus does when he gets to my 20s, to my teenage years. Says the older ones left and then the younger ones, they're like, I'm out of here. And stones start to not be thrown, but to drop to the ground. The sound is pop, 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 stone dropping, dropping, dropping because no one can condemn her because they are equally at fault. You're not alone in your sins, my friends. You're not alone in your mistakes. You're guilty, but you're not alone. And all of them are gone and suddenly... It's just her and Jesus. It says, Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before her. And Jesus stood up to her and said, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. And that's an important thing because right now she's not worried about the crowd anymore because she knows she is the one that can condemn her the most. We don't need a crowd to stone us. We do it pretty good ourselves. And she does. And she says, no one, Lord. She doesn't mean the crowd. She means, Lord, I'm not going to condemn myself anymore. What a powerful moment. No more am I going to cast stones at me, even though I'm caught and guilty. No more. And Jesus says, then neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on, sin no more. Sounds crazy to think. It's kind of impossible, isn't it? Because I've sinned like 14 times just since I got up here to preach, all right? Not just this morning's like, I'm, I'm gonna like sin 258. All right, but just since I got up here, it's like 14 times I've, I think I've already sinned. It's impossible to not sin because I'm still a human wrapped in flesh and I'm failed and I live in a sinful earth and I am a sinful person. But what, what Jesus means here for her and for me and maybe for some of you in this crowd is this. When he says, go and sin no more, he's saying, stop killing yourself over this. Stop casting stones of judgment and condemnation at you. He says, no one condemns you and neither do I. See, when the human inclination is to throw rocks, the other thing we've got to learn is this. The heavenly inclination is to receive. The human inclination is to throw, but the heavenly inclination is to receive. And Jesus receives this woman and says, I accept you as you are, broken past and all. He's looking at her going, your sin, your past, it separated you long enough. And Jesus wants to forgive. Which gives us our big idea today is this. Our big idea is this. If you catch anything, put some handles on this and walk it home. We only know the thrill of condemning. We love it. But after a while, it's just not as fun as it used to be. It's not as easy as it used to be. We, we know the, only the thrill of condemning. But Jesus only shows the thrill of forgiving. Jesus doesn't condemn her because he can't. He doesn't know how to do that. He's got the list He's got the rap sheet against you and I. He writes it in the dirt. It's all there for me and for you and for us. But that's not how he operates. He is thrilled by forgiving. He is thrilled by expressing grace and love to you and to me. We know the thrill of condemning. And after a while, it doesn't work anymore. Because we're still condemning ourselves. And it's tearing us down. And it's breaking us. Jesus 
knows the thrill of forgiving. Today, what if we leaned in on what Jesus is offering? If my preaching professors from seminary were here, they would be upset at me because I've kind of, and you bless your hearts, you've kind of had to ride along with my ADD sweaty rants this morning. And they'd be like, Joel, where's the practical steps? You got to give the people practical steps to get past their past. So let me do this. Let me give you three practical steps that you can take today. You can take this morning, this afternoon, tonight before you go to bed. Three steps that you can do to get past your past, okay? Let me give them to you. You're going to want to write these down. Number one is this. What first step that you have to do to get past your past? Number one is Jesus, period. All right? Step number two. You want to write this down, all right? Step number two is forgives, period. And step number three, practical step. Step three is you, exclamation point. Jesus forgives you. He forgives me. If you want 10 steps for how to get past this, I'll point you to other churches and they'll give you steps out your ears. I don't have time for that. My past is so great. My sin is so deep. All I can do in my life and all I can encourage you to do is to cling to Jesus who forgives because he loves stories like this. He loves stories where rocks are involved and they should be used one way, but now they're testament of grace and forgiveness because that's what thrills him. In the book of Joshua, the nation of Israel has, has been coming out of the season of wandering and all they did was circle in the wilderness for a generation. That's all these people knew. And they were stuck out there because they kept sinning. They moaned and they groaned and they whined and they complained and they questioned. And they circled and circled and circled. And they finally got to a point where it got through their thick skull. Maybe I'll trust what God is doing here. And he brought them to the edge of the Jordan River. And on the other side of the Jordan River was this land that was promised to them. and had the most creative name. It was called the Promised Land. Doesn't that sound amazing? And they're right there ready to go in to have this new life, this new opportunity, because that's what God loves to give, new opportunities. And to get there, he does this amazing thing where through his servant Joshua, he parts the Jordan River. It was flowing once and now it's parted and they walk through on dry land into the promised land. They didn't deserve it. They were guilty. They shouldn't have gotten there, but it's parted and they go through much like their ancestors had done when they crossed the Red Sea, leaving slavery. He's given them a third chance here, out of slavery, out of the wilderness, into the promised land. And God tells Joshua, tell each tribe, and there were 12 of them, tell each tribe to stop in the middle of the river and to get a stone, to get a rock, and to carry it into the promised land. And when you get to the promised land, don't eat, don't drink, don't party. The first thing you do is you take that rock and you take the other 11 and you set them down and you make an altar where you worship God who has shown great love and forgiveness to your people. Because he loves stories like that. There's a guy named Peter in the New Testament. He was one of Jesus' closest followers and disciples. And he was all about Jesus so much that he preached it boldly and he acted boldly. And Peter was courageous and he was incredible until Jesus was arrested and people began to question Peter. He thought the law was going to come down on him too. And he was scared. And somebody pointed their finger at him and said, aren't you with Jesus? And he denied it. And then another one said, no, no, I'm pretty sure with Jesus. And he denied it. And a third time somebody said, I'm pretty sure you're one of Jesus' followers. And he says, I don't know the man. The amazing thing about that story is the people that were pointing their fingers at him were little girls. 
He was scared of little girls. And he said, I don't know them. And then he was broken over this. He was heartbroken because he had sinned so much that he said, I don't know who Jesus is, where he really did. But because Jesus thrills at forgiveness, when Jesus came back from the dead, which is incredible in and of itself, he goes to Peter and he restores him. And he says, you are going to be this preacher, this leader. The church is going to be built upon you. And you're going to go out. And and Peter becomes one of the greatest preachers in the New Testament. So much so that he has two books in the Bible named after him. And oh yeah, what what does the word Peter mean? It means rock. Because Jesus loves stories like that. So much so that when he didn't have to, he took a cross upon his back and was cursed and was yelled at and was spit upon. And he was tortured and he was whipped and he drugged this cross through thousands of people who hated him. And he took it up a hill called Golgotha, which meant the skull. And he went up there and he had himself nailed to that cross through his arms and through his shins. And he died. He died of suffocation. And the worst part of it is when he didn't have to, not only did he experience that, but he took my sins and your sins, all that we will do and ever do, all that we have done, our past, our mistakes, our law-breaking that we're guilty of, and he put it upon him, and God could not look at him, and he forsake Jesus because God does not look upon sin, and he turned his back on Jesus. And if you ever see a picture of Golgotha, it is just a big, barren hill that looks like a rock. Because Jesus thrills in forgiveness and he wants the rocks that are in our hands that we fling at ourselves, that we beat ourselves up over our past. He wants us to lay them down and make them an altar. He wants to build upon them so we'll be people who go forth and proclaim forgiveness Because he himself has set the cross squarely upon the rocks of our past and said, I forgive you. I believe in you. I want you to have a new life. Jesus forgives me. Jesus forgives each and every one of you here today, no matter your past. Will you pray with me? God, we thank you for Jesus Christ. When he didn't have to, and even when he didn't want to, he went to the cross for each one of us. And I pray, Father, that we will accept him, lean in on him, trust him. And I pray, God, that you'll forgive me, not of my past because you've done that, but you'll forgive me of the times that I didn't trust you enough, that I cast stones at me in my mind and my heart I condemn myself and judge myself and beat myself up because that's not the life you have for me, God. That's not what you want for me. That's not what you want for the people in this room. So today, God, give us the courage to reach out to one of our pastors, to a friend that brought him here that they trust, to a small group leader and begin to ask those questions of how deep is Jesus's love? Can he really forgive my past and show them, Father, make them feel and experience and know that yes, you can, that you have forgiven us. May we take hold of that and lay down the rocks of our life and allow you to build something great upon it. I lift these people up in Jesus' name, amen.